In today's episode, Hannah is chatting with Bronte, who lives a very normal life, even though she was at one point diagnosed with this very common, very manageable STI. Hi guys, my name's Hannah and I'm a doctor who works in reproductive and sexual health. Today on the episode, we're discussing herpes. And this is something that I see literally every day at work. Herpes simplex virus, or HSV as it's also called, is a very common skin infection that affects millions of Australians. It typically affects two areas, the mouth and the genitals. There are two strains of the HSV virus and they're aptly named HSV1 and HSV2. Now HSV type 1 is most commonly associated with orolabial lesions or mouth lesions. Basically, it causes cold sores. HSV type 2, on the other hand, has been the form that's more commonly implicated in genital herpes. That said, either strain of the HSV virus can be picked up in either location. Basically, HSV1 and HSV2 can both be causes of genital herpes. I just wanted to give you some quick facts about herpes. Firstly, Sadly, there is no cure for herpes, but it is a very, very manageable condition. It has a kind of relapsing, remitting type pattern. So even though you can't get rid of it altogether, you're not symptomatic with it all the time. So you might have, you know, a first outbreak, have some lesions and then it will go away. And it might be weeks, months, years until you ever experience symptoms again. And this pattern, it's really different for different individuals. It depends on what strain of the virus they have, if they have other medical comorbidities, what the triggers are for their outbreaks, lots of different reasons. And not all of them we really understand, to be perfectly honest. Basically, herpes can be managed with either episodic treatment, and this is when you take antiviral medication, which are just tablets, whenever you notice your symptoms might be coming back. The other alternative is what we call suppressive therapy. And this is where you take a tablet every single day. And this is to prevent recurrences. So instead of waiting to notice your symptoms and taking a tablet, then you can just take a tablet every single day. And that significantly reduces the chance that you will have a recurrence. And I guess a lot of people wonder why wouldn't everyone just go on suppressive therapy? And there's lots of good reasons for that. I guess very simple things like people don't necessarily want to be on daily medication. They may not have very recurrent disease anyway, so it's not that relevant or helpful in those situations. And some people have uh, reasons why they can't take the medication on a regular basis too. So it's really individual in terms of how herpes is managed in the long term. And there's actually a lot of personal choice that comes into it. And it's really just about empowering the individual to understand the disease process and, you know, working out what's best for you when it comes to managing herpes. So I've been lucky enough to have Bronte offer to chat to me today about genital herpes. So we're going to get into the interview now. So today we're obviously chatting about herpes or HSV and you've got some first-hand experience with this. Can you just talk us through when you were first diagnosed and what that experience was like? Uh, So it was a couple of years ago. I was with 
a guy um, who I thought I was seeing. And anyway, we broke up, messy, lovely. And I um, went to the doctor. I was like, I just need to be tested for everything. I didn't have anything at the time that I knew of. Anyway, I had the testing. And she was like, no, no, you're all fine. I was like, oh, okay. Um, anyway, then I got like a little, just a little bump. Like it could have been a pimple, but I was just being super vigilant because the guy I'd been with was not a particularly nice person. I went back to the mm-hmm. same doctor and she swabbed it and she initially wouldn't. I had to ask her too. She was like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. We'll just do the blood test. All good. Anyway, she swabbed it, um, called back a week later. And I was like, nothing. It's all fine. You're all clear. So I went to another doctor and she was like, oh no, it's fine. We'll just do a blood test. I'm like, no, I've already had a blood test. And like, I, found, I found it really hard for anyone to actually do it. And eventually she was like, oh yes, okay, fine. So I got the swab and it came back as positive for HSV2. And she just gave me some antivirals for like five days worth. And she's like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll probably never get it again. I won't need, you don't need to speak to me about it again. It's like, oh, okay. Um, mm. So I took my antivirals after the week and it was all good. And a couple of weeks later, I got another one and I went back to it. Well, I didn't get another one. I just had like some tingling, which is what usually like the pre, well, they call it prodromal symptoms are. And she was like, you're probably just imagining it. Don't worry about it. And didn't give me anything. So it was a really mm. frustrating process of actually getting mm. there. Yeah. No one seems to really, the doctor's medical world didn't really weren't particularly fussed by it yeah okay it can be yeah obviously quite hit and miss in terms of how comfortable people are with diagnosing it and how often you see it and all that kind of stuff I guess comes into it a bit as well and unfortunately yeah that can take its toll on the patient which is a bit frustrating yeah just going back to that very first time that you noticed symptoms was it just that one bump that you noticed or like was it a cluster or um no to start with it was just a bump like I could have it could have just been a pimple for all I knew a little you know just a little whitehead but um I was just yeah being super vigilant so I went to the doctors and then a few days later that kind of burst and it became a tiny little like a um almost like a little scab uh and then a week later they were gone okay yeah And did you have any other symptoms? Like was it painful or itchy Um, or tingling or anything else? It was a little bit painful at the time, the first one, but not since then, just that one week. Yeah, okay. And some people, like there's such a big variation in terms of what kind of pain people experience with a HSV or herpes infection and how severe it was. Did you need any like significant painkillers or...? How did you kind of manage the the pain that was associated with it? Um, I didn't use any painkillers or anything. It's kind of like a stingy feeling, I guess. So um, just I used kind of like menthol type things to kind of take that sting out of it. So it still hurt, but like in a way that wasn't frustrating, if that makes sense. So um, and cold, anything cold. So it was like ice. um, Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. And you said it was about a week or so for that first episode to to settle down, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And what were you told at the time? Oh, it sounds like you were told probably this won't happen again, is that right? Yeah, I was told, um, yeah, it's fine, we get it all the time, I'll probably never, I won't, we don't need to see you about it again, Um, just take this one set of antivirals, it doesn't come back in most people, so don't worry about it. It's really hard to get information from the doctors. Yeah, where did you look for information if you had a doctor that wasn't maybe super helpful? Where else did you look? I kind of diagnosed myself before I went in there. Um, So I kind Mm -hmm. of went in there ready for it and I'd been on Google and Reddit 
and just everything. And I'd found out that herpes isn't even on your standard list of STI testing. It's one of the most common STIs and it's you actually have to specifically ask to be tested for it. Yeah, and that's interesting you mentioned that because quite a few people, when I did a shout out for questions about this topic, lots of people wrote in and said, why don't I get a herpes test when I go and see my doctor just for a normal screen? And yeah, it's interesting you raise it because there's actually really good reason for that, which I will kind of answer in a bit more detail later. But we do specifically only test for it in people who have some type of symptom that could be consistent with herpes. And the main reason for that is you can get a lot of false positive results or results that aren't that helpful, I guess. And that's what Um, I read. Like, even if you've been exposed to someone that has it, even if you don't get it, your body builds up some antibody. So if you are testing for it, it'll come back with yes, even though you don't. Yeah. And so like a majority of the population will have antibodies to some type of the herpes virus. And that doesn't, obviously, if you have a blood test, that doesn't tell you where the infections occurred. So people can get a lot of anxiety, like I've had this positive blood test. So now do I have to tell everyone that I've got herpes on my genitals? And it tends to create more problems than it kind of solves. But Yeah, but I can totally understand why it's frustrating in your situation when you've got this new symptom that you're concerned about. No one seems to be really you know, on the same page as you in terms of looking into it. So it's good you persevered and kind of worked out what was going on. At the time, how did you kind of, was it psychologically stressful for you or how did you kind of cope from that perspective? Um, well, put it this way, I left, quit my job and left the country. <laughs> so yeah, it was really, <laughs> right. it was really stressful because it had been a really, really messy, messy breakup with the person at the time as well. So I was like heartbroken and that mm. was going on as well. And I couldn't tell him about it because he wasn't having a bar of it. And so, yeah, it was really stressful. So I just, you know, laid in bed for days. I wouldn't speak to anyone. Mm. Um, like just basically convinced I'd, you know, never have a boyfriend again, never be able to have sex again. So yeah, it was mm. really the first week or so was really hard. And then after that, I um For I ended, sure. did did end up quitting my job and um going on a long overseas holiday. But um nice. <laughs> yeah, that that first probably month was yeah, really hard. Yeah. Like breakups are shitty enough at the best of times, <laughs> yeah. but having to deal with this as well, that's no fun at all, you poor thing. No. Were there people that you could kind of because Obviously, with any STI, there still is quite a lot of stigma attached Mm. to it. And particularly with herpes, I guess, because it is technically one that we don't have a cure for. Did you feel like it was something you could talk to your friends about or your family? Or was there any way you could get some support when you were going through that kind of tricky time? Uh, I did tell a few people, like I tell my sister, and her response was, okay, well, whatever. I've got a friend who's got it. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? This isn't the reaction I wanted. I wanted like. <laughs> um, And I told a couple of friends, and they were like, okay. Like, it was just not really much of a reaction. A few people asked questions, like, oh, what is it? What does it mean? How does it work? But yeah, that, that was really all. It was pretty isolating. I mean, it's not something you really just want to come out and say, oh, hey, got this. But yeah, yeah, guess what, people, everyone? <laughs> yeah, but the people I did speak to, it was, um, yeah, pretty easy. Yeah, that's good. I know at least where I work, obviously it's specifically a sexual health clinic, so we deal with this kind of stuff really, really commonly, and we know that there's a, a really big spectrum in terms of how people will respond to a, a herpes diagnosis, and some people are like, whatever, I don't care, I know it's common, I'll mm. just take the tablets, everything's all good. And then on the other end, there's people that are like, 
my life is over. I'm never going to date again. You know, can I have babies? You know, they just really spiral and stress about that. So we just blanket give everybody the option of seeing a psychologist just to talk through any of these kind of stressful thoughts that they might be having. Was that something that was offered to you or something that you thought about at all? No, it definitely wasn't offered. Yeah, as I said, the, the most I got offered was a, a five-day prescription of Famvia and on your way. Would you have found that helpful, do you think? Or um, I'm not sure. It probably would have scared me a little bit, like, oh, wow, it's yeah. this big crazy thing, as opposed to, like, I mean, in retrospect, it was kind of the good that the doctors were so chill about it because it was like, yeah. oh, okay, it's not a big deal. They don't care. I shouldn't care. So I guess, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I did have a psychologist at the time, so I did I did speak to her about it. And she was like, okay, well, here are the facts. Like, it's not actually a big deal. And I think that's what we're always trying to make really clear. Like, from a medical point of view, we're just like, oh, it's a really super common skin infection that, you know, 10% of adults have, like it's not, it really isn't a big deal. But yeah, I I do always find that a bit tricky trying to broach that subject of, do you want some support? But also this is not a big deal. Like it's going to be okay. So it's kind of like you're sending mixed messages. So yeah, it's a tricky one. Yeah. No, I mean, it would have been um, good to have had that opportunity to say, here's someone who is trained and able to speak to you about it if you want to, if you want that option. But if you don't, you know, that's fine too. Yeah, I guess it's all about options. Exactly. (laughs) And do you know, so when they did, obviously you specifically requested a swab of this lesion that you were concerned about. Did they also do a blood test or... Just Not swab for, for that. They did the regular blood test, as you do for just yep. standard screening, but no, yep. they didn't. Okay, perfect, because that's another really common thing that confuses people, as I mentioned yeah. before. So um, that's I, good. Yeah, I actually had to go to two doctors. The first swab came back negative and the second one came back positive. So that was a, right. another confusing bit as well. Many ups and downs in your journey with this, yeah. by the sounds. and I mean, this was all over the process of like three or four days as well so it's not like this is a long drawn out process yeah yeah gosh I mean it's it's kind of nice that you didn't need any crazy you know obviously you took the tablets but you know some sometimes people have like quite severe pain and need you know topical anesthetic or pain you know different painkillers and stuff like that so again I it's just one of those things there's so much variability and the experience that different people have when your GP told you that your swap was positive, did they just do that over the phone or did they say come in and have a chat? How did that kind of happen? They said come in and have a chat. So she gave me the results and a prescription. So all in all, it's probably like a five, ten minute appointment. Yeah, and she's like, oh, and here's a website if you want some further information. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it was pretty chill. Yeah. <laughs> and so since that first outbreak or when you were diagnosed, how many times have your symptoms kind of come back? It's pretty sporadic, um, maybe a couple of times a year. I mean, I do um, what they call, what is it, repression therapy? or So I take suppressive. the suppressive, oh goodness. Um, yes, I take the <laughs> suppressive therapy. So I um, take the, the tablet a day and that seems to keep yep. it pretty under control. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And was that started pretty soon after that first diagnosis or did you wait to kind of see what, how recurrent it would be for you? Um, I waited to see how recurrent it would be. And I mean, I'd only got it one more time, but I was like, no, that's it, not having it. And yeah, yeah, straight (laughs) on to that. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And just so 
I guess the listeners are aware, the suppressive therapy is when you take one tablet every day kind of indefinitely until you decide you want to come off it. And the alternative option is what we call episodic therapy, which is where you just take a course of the antiviral tablets every time you notice your symptoms might be returning. And most GPs are good. Like they'll give you a script to have on hand so you can have – you just start taking the tablets when you notice the symptoms. But – yeah, it's it's really about personal choice, I guess, when it comes to how you want it managed long term. I guess we've touched on it a little bit already when you were kind of having that difficult period after you were told about the diagnosis of herpes and you were concerned about future relationships and that kind of stuff. How have you navigated that going forward? Are you dating now? Tell us a bit about that. (laughs) Um, So I've had two relationships since. I had one long-term one. And, I mean, we were seeing each other for probably four weeks before I told him. I hadn't slept with him or anything. And uh, he sat down. I was like, look, there is something I need to tell you. And he just went, oh, okay. I mean, that was was it. We used protection to start with, but afterwards, no. um, And it never became an issue for him. Yeah. And were you on the suppressive therapy that whole time as well? On and off. But, um, yeah, didn't have the outbreaks and it didn't affect him either so that was yeah good and then um there was someone else that I was seeing that was a short-term relationship just a few months and same thing waited a couple of weeks told him he asked a couple of questions and was like okay cool so both times they were (laughs) really easy um kind of yeah non-issue disclosures yeah that's awesome and that's I guess what we're always trying to you know we we want that to be the case because at the end of the day it's it's really not a big deal so yeah that's awesome that You've had people that are just like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Moving along. Like the first one I told, he was like, wait, you waited four weeks to tell me that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> goodness me. Should have just told you the first day, shouldn't I? <laughs> and were you kind of like, were you stressed before you did told someone the first time in that yeah. situation? Yeah. I was super stressed because I got really bad anxiety. So it's like my mouth stopped working. Like I literally could not mm. speak. I'd open my mouth and it wouldn't come out. So I was sitting next to him on the bed and I texted it to him. Oh, no. Oh, well, that's good. Whatever works. Um, It did work. He just looked at me and hugged me. He's like, oh, you idiot. And yeah, that rest was history. That's nice. And I guess in terms of maybe casual partners or stuff like that, have you ever thought of thought about not telling someone before you had sex with them? Or is it something that you want to do just to let everyone know beforehand? I mean, it's always something you kind of consider. It's like, I mean, I can't be bothered having this conversation. Like it's, I mean, at the end of the day, if you look at the statistics, it's like so unlikely that you're going to pass it on. And then it's also like the the, the the fact that I do know I have it means that I do have that duty of disclosure that, you know, most people don't know they've got it. So like there's that whole mm. frustrating moral conundrum. But um, no, I'm, I don't really do the one night stand thing anymore like I might have once when I was younger I'd prefer to tell people very good and I touch on because a lot of people also asked about that like what your actual legal obligations are so I do answer that question later on as well but yeah basically if you're taking reasonable precautions to protect the other person it's not like you literally have to go and tell every single person and it sounds like you've been doing very sensible things anyway as well as letting people know so you've been very kind to people (laughs) yeah I think the biggest thing is just like the stigma as well because I mean your chances as a female I think it's a bit less than a male of passing it on and I mean so little of the population that does have it know that they have it so it's kind of frustrating it's like yeah. oh, if I hadn't had a breakout I wouldn't have known about it and I wouldn't have had to have told anyone about it yeah so, 
now that you know, you've got to carry the the weight of yeah, letting people know and that yeah. kind of stuff. Oh, that's tricky. And you mentioned that the GP gave you one website or whatever. Were there any other kind of things on like social media or, you know, anywhere else that you found particularly helpful in terms of knowing what to expect or other people's experience of HSV? Yes, I went to Reddit, as you do for all problems. Um, And they've got a a forum there and it's just people writing random stuff, facts, studies, information, successful disclosures, tips, tricks, all of that. So I had a look through there to start with, but it's not really something I look into anymore because it's not really, it's not really an issue for me anymore. It's just, I'm back to normal. It's just a conversation I have to have now. Yeah. Obviously it's HSV is also the virus that causes cold sores. So in a similar way, it's like when it's not a problem, it's not a problem. And when it pops up, it's not the end of the world. You just deal with it. (laughs) Yeah, like it's also in the same bunch of viruses as um, glandular fever and chickenpox and shingles. And it's like, you know, you don't go around to everyone and say, oh, hey, I've got chickenpox, Um, you know, (laughs) chance you could get it now. Or I've had glandular fever. And I mean, I've had glandular fever. That literally made me sicker than this ever has. So there's kind of that frustration as well. Yeah. And I think looking at it in terms of those other similar types of viruses also helps you really normalize it in the way you think about it. Because it's like, it's just another bug that's out there and lots of people have it. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess one other question, some people when they, particularly with a first diagnosis of herpes, they sometimes get systemic symptoms. So like fever or kind of lymph nodes popping up, or they might feel generally unwell, nausea, that kind of stuff. Did you experience any of that? No, nothing. It was no. purely, purely the, um, yeah, physical symptom. Yeah. Pretty straightforward then. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. Is there anything else you think is relevant to add or anything you'd like other people to know who might be going through the same situation you went through a few years ago being diagnosed? Um, Chill out. It actually doesn't really matter. I mean, as long as you're careful, your chance of passing it out, passing it on is in like such the lowest percentile that it's, yeah, yeah, don't stress. Yeah. Yeah. And you will carry on a very normal, happy, long life and <laughs> yeah, exactly all right. of that stuff. Yeah. Nothing to stress about. Yeah, I think the most frustrating thing is that, that stigma because, you know, all the other viruses that have the name herpes, which, you know, shingle, shingles is a herpes and so is, as I said before, glandular fever. But they've all got different names as well, which I think makes a big difference. So this is the only one that carries that name. So it carries the stigma, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully this will help some people or help all of us reduce that stigma a bit more. So that's been super helpful. Thank you, Bronte. No worries. Thanks for having me up. So I'm going to run through some questions that people have sent in on Instagram relating to herpes. So the first one is actually a really good question. It just says, why can't you get rid of it? And there's a very complicated medical answer to this, and I'm always a bit unsure of how detailed I should go. But for those who are interested, basically, when you first are infected with the virus, it replicates. So it makes heaps and heaps of copies of the virus at the site that it's actually caused the infection. So say on the labia, for example. After that, it actually invades nerves, so nerve endings that are in the area, and they are transported 
up basically to the root of those nerves and there it replicates more so it makes more and more copies and then it establishes what we call a latent infection so you always harbor that virus somewhere in your body but it's not always causing symptoms that latent infection it lasts for the lifetime of the person so there's no way that we can actually get rid of that latent infection and that's why herpes isn't curable There's usually a stimulus that reactivates the virus. So this can be anything from, you know, being stressed, having a high fever, illness, even they think being exposed to UV light can be a trigger for a herpes outbreak. So in these situations, the virus then transits back to the genital site and that's where replication again occurs. So that's why you get recurrence of your symptoms. And when this happens, because you've been exposed to the HSV virus before, your body, your immune system actually recognizes the virus. So it's much quicker to respond. So that's why recurrences of herpes outbreaks tend to be less severe. So you have less pain and the symptoms don't last for as long. So the next question is, what is the difference between type 1 and type 2 HSV? We kind of touched on this a little bit already. I'm sure there are thousands of microbiologists out there that could give you a much more thorough answer to this question than I can. But basically, the short answer is they are two distinct viruses, but they have very similar organization of their genomes. So the clinical distinction between the two is becoming kind of less obvious and almost less significant. They're largely managed exactly the same way. Traditionally, type 1 was what occurred around the mouth and causing cold sores, and it's transmitted by contact and saliva, whereas type 2 was the one that was classically around the anus or the genitals and transmitted sexually. But you can get type 1 or type 2 on your genitals. Often type 1, when it's picked up on the genitals, causes less recurrences than type 2. So that's one of the main differences between them. So the next question says, I asked my doctor for an STI screen, including herpes, and they said they wouldn't do the herpes test. Why is this? And this is a question that, again, probably every day I have people coming to me saying, can I have a herpes test? Basically, we only test for herpes in people who have symptoms that are suggestive of herpes. So if you come in and you have a painful ulcer or breaks in the genital skin or little vesicles or, you know, something that would suggest that there's potentially a herpes infection there, that's the only situation we really test for it in. The reason for that is because herpes, it's a really common virus, so in the general population, and if we swab enough people randomly in the genital tract, we'll get a lot of false positive results, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. And what do we even do with that result? If you don't have any symptoms, we're not going to treat you anyway. So usually what we do is just cause a lot of unnecessary anxiety by telling you, you might have genital herpes, but we don't actually know for sure. So, yeah, that's the main reason why we don't offer it as part of a normal STI screen when you're well. I guess the other thing to mention is that we don't routinely do a herpes blood test. So that is an available test, but we we don't do that because it doesn't help us identify the site of the infection. So we might pick up HSV type 1 antibodies in your bloodstream, but that doesn't tell us whether the infection occurred at the genital site or if maybe you had it transmitted to you 
as a child and you had one cold sore once, you know, it's just, again, not a helpful test. There are specific circumstances in which a blood test for herpes is appropriate, and this is more for people who are immunosuppressed or patients who are pregnant, uh, but that's a bit beyond the scope of today. The short answer is your GP or your doctor did exactly the right thing, because if you have no symptoms of concern, there's absolutely no benefit in doing a herpes test. So this is another great question. This person has just asked, do you legally have to tell everyone that you have sex with about your herpes diagnosis? And the answer to this is no. We certainly don't tell every patient with herpes that they need to disclose it to every single person that they have sex with. The law basically states that a person who knows they have a notifiable disease that's sexually transmissible, so this can be things like herpes, but also HIV, you know, lots of different things, it's required that they take reasonable precautions against spreading the disease or condition. So that might include things like avoiding sex when you know you have an outbreak or active ulcers on your genital region. Uh, it could include taking antiviral treatment or using condoms. The alternative, of course, is that you can disclose to a partner and they can decide what type of risk they want to take. This, of course, is a bit tricky when it comes to casual partners. So as long as you're taking reasonable precautions against spreading the disease, then you should be fine. Often patients in our clinic that we see, they um, really find it tricky to navigate this issue. And yeah, we, we often do get them to see counsellors to help them decide how they're going to go about this going forward, because it's potentially going to be a recurrent issue that pops up for them throughout the course of their life. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I certainly can't give you know insight into how these issues are defended in court. But my understanding is if you've made those attempts to reasonably reduce the risk to your partner, then everything is okay. And I feel so strongly that this should not be a criminal offense because it is so common. It's so easy to transmit. People don't always know that they have the virus when they transmit it. And there was actually one case that received a great deal of publicity uh, in the UK, and that's a 31-year-old guy by the name of David Golding was actually sentenced to prison, to jail for 14 months for grievous bodily harm in 2011, and that was because he passed genital herpes on to his ex-girlfriend and he was aware of his diagnosis. So yeah, that's a really rare thing to happen. And you know, people aren't usually prosecuted for this. As long as you're taking those reasonable precautions, it's okay. Another really great question this person has asked, does having herpes affect your future babies? So the short answer again is no. Being diagnosed with genital herpes does not need to make you fearful about falling pregnant. The majority of people who have herpes will have very normal pregnancies and can have a normal vaginal delivery. There are some circumstances where herpes can impact on how a pregnancy and delivery is managed. And a lot of the time they do recommend that if you've had herpes, you might just go on suppressive therapy from 36 weeks onwards. And that's just to prevent you having an outbreak close to the time that you're going to have your baby. And the whole point of this is basically to prevent neonatal herpes and this is when a newborn baby is infected with the virus and the reason that we're so concerned about avoiding this is because it can make babies really unwell so it can affect their skin their eyes their mouth their brain lungs and it can even cause sepsis and death so it can be quite serious for babies so I guess what a lot of people also want to know in this situation is so what is the actual risk of transmitting herpes from mother to baby 
And interestingly, if you've had herpes before, the overall risk of transmission to your baby is less than 1%, so it's quite low. If you've had herpes before and you have an outbreak in the genital tract when you're having your baby, obviously the risk is a bit higher then. And it tends to be higher if you have herpes type 1. It's as high as 15% if there's an active HSV1 lesion there when you have a vaginal birth. Whereas if you have recurrence of HSV type 2 at the time of delivery, the risk is less than 0.01%. So again, I want to stress that this is if there's an active lesion there as you're actually in labor pushing your baby out and usually, you know, the doctors and midwives would have picked it up and made some kind of alternative plan to avoid neonatal herpes in that situation. The highest risk of transmission from mother to baby is actually if there's a new herpes infection during the pregnancy. So funnily enough, it's kind of the people who have pre-existing herpes that are maybe almost a bit safer because they're not at risk necessarily of getting a new herpes infection during the pregnancy. And this is particularly true if the new infection occurs quite late in the pregnancy. This is because your body doesn't have time to kind of produce those protective immune cells to help fight the infection that can also convey some protection to your baby. So it can be as high as 25 to 50 percent if that antibody test isn't positive by about 34 weeks of the pregnancy. But again, we don't need to be overly stressed in a general sense about this. These are very specific situations that um, highly trained specialist doctors deal with regularly. So you'll be adequately counseled. And I guess the only other thing I would add to that is sometimes, you know, if you are in that very high risk group, if you've acquired new herpes at the late stages of pregnancy and there's active lesions present, In some situations, they will recommend that you have a cesarean. It's all about balancing risk and benefit. And they would always involve you in that decision-making process as well. One last thing, although babies, if they are to be infected with the herpes virus, it usually occurs during labor. Sometimes it can occur like in utero, so during the pregnancy, and that can cause something called congenital herpes. But again, this is very rare, so it's not anything to be worried about, but it is just one of those potential things that we're aware of. This question just says, can the risk of an outbreak be minimized? We have touched on this a little bit maybe, but it can, yes. And suppressive therapy is a really, I guess, good way to do that because you're taking it as prophylaxis, so prevention. Uh, That's probably the most effective way to prevent an outbreak. But other ways would just be to maintain really good general health. So good diet, lots of exercise, keep well, and just keep in mind that if you, if you are unwell or other things happen, you know, you you might get an outbreak and that's okay. This question says, please tell us about how you can get HSV1 transmitted through oral to genitals because the world must know. Yeah. So basically if someone has a big cracking cold sore on their upper lip, probably don't let them perform oral sex on you or do it if you want because it's your body and your choice but do it being aware that there's a high risk that you might get genital herpes from them next question just says in all capital letters does it hurt forever and the answer to that is no it doesn't last question a girl i knew apparently had to be admitted to hospital with herpes is this true it can't make you sick can it 
So it is actually possible for people to be hospitalized with herpes. It's quite rare, but it does sometimes happen. And this can be for, you know, quite a few different reasons. Sometimes it's just for management of symptoms. So if there's severe pain, genital swelling or urinary retention. So sometimes um, people can't actually pass urine. Uh, there are reasons why they might need to stay in hospital. It's usually very short admission, if anything. Other times, hospitalisation from herpes can be because of rare but very serious medical complications such as meningitis. So I guess, yeah, the short answer is yes, it is possible she was admitted for herpes, but it's very rare. And regardless, I think the important thing is just to be kind and accepting of your pals with herpes. So in summary, herpes simplex virus is exceedingly common in the general community. It is technically not curable, but it's a very manageable condition. There are plenty of people who can assist you with the difficult conversations you may face. And I've linked some helpful websites in the show notes if you want to know a bit more about herpes. Thanks, guys. Bye. You to you, you to me, you to us is a podcast for general discussion only. Nothing we talk about should be taken as personal medical advice and it does not substitute information or instructions given to you by your own doctor. If the podcast raises any questions or concerns for you, please see your GP, sexual health or family planning clinic. For general discussion, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please stop trusting strangers on the internet with your health. This podcast is a production of Simo Interactive, home of the My Millennial Money podcast. Podcast.